Good morning. So how many of you remember going on a very first date? Okay. I'm on a first date myself right now. So, um, And I know a, a bit about you. I think I know more about you than you know about me because I know Dale Flowers. And I know that you have extraordinarily good, not only good taste, but wisdom in having a person like Dale as your pastor. And you know all about his hospital visits, his care for you as individuals, his great preaching, teaching. What I know, because I don't, you know, we're usually busy on Sundays and not available to go to others' churches, but I know Dale is a, just a great friend and a wonderful human being, and he is, he is the most, and I'm going to say this absolutely sincerely, he's the most Christ-like pastor I have ever met. Ever. So uh, it's my privilege to try to help in some small way during this temporary period. So this fall, Dale has already explored with you Jesus' call to Simon to become his follower. And today we're going to continue with Luke's narrative and Jesus' call to Levi, who's a very unlikely choice to become a follower of Jesus uh, because Levi is a tax collector. Down in Marin, we just received our annual property tax bills. Anybody get one here from your Sonoma County? Okay, all right. Now, I don't know the name of your Sonoma County tax collector, but I'm guessing that in your uh, whatever culture, anyway, that in Sonoma County here, he is not a social or religious outcast. That cannot be said of Levi. In other words, he was, by definition, a social and religious outcast. Why was that? During the time of Jesus' ministry, what we know today as Israel and the West Bank was occupied Roman territory. In service to the emperor, Roman-appointed officials collected property and poll taxes. They did that themselves. But they farmed out to the highest bidder, a member of a local population, a Jewish man, a tax-collecting franchise. And whatever you collected beyond the price of the franchise was, guess what, yours to keep. And for that reason, tax collectors often built their fellow and sister Jews in order to line their pockets and make a profit on their transaction. Tax collectors were thus among the highest earners in their society, and I use the term earners loosely. In essence, such persons were robbing their fellow and sister Hebrews, and in fact, rabbinic sources directly equates tax gatherers and thieves. They're in the same category together. Tax collectors were also despised for a second reason, because they were disloyal collaborators with the occupying Roman authorities. They were in service of pagan Rome, and due to those ethical concerns and the tax collector's close association with Gentiles, a tax collector was not allowed to participate in synagogue worship, kind of like we're, what we're doing here today, was not allowed to hold communal office or give testimony in a Jewish court. In other words, those civil rights which every other Israelite could claim were denied specifically tax gatherers. 
In fact, a tax collector defiled a home by entering it or would defile you by coming too close. And so by definition, Levi is a social and religious outcast. Now in Luke's narrative, the previous events have been occurring in Capernaum, that wonderful little village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And based in Capernaum, Levi was present to collect taxes from those bringing property and goods. So the, his, his, the tax franchise that was farmed out to a local Jewish person was about moving property and goods from one jurisdiction to another. So those bringing goods and property from the, from the adjacent area of Golanitis, uh, Upper Galilee, which was governed by Herod Philip, into Galilee, an area governed by Philip's brother Herod Antipas, had to pay a tax. That's what Levi was in business to do. And he, so he is Herod Antipas' employee. Well, with that long introduction, let's hear our text from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 35, as Leah comes to read for us. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. Then Levi gave a great banquet for Jesus in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. The word of the Lord. One quick observation, when Jesus calls Levi, as he called Simon earlier, Jesus differentiates himself from any other first century Jewish teacher or rabbi that we know of, because other rabbis, other teachers, let disciples choose to align themselves with a particular teacher. Jesus does not. Jesus always takes the initiative, at least in choosing that inner circle. And so just as he chose Simon, he now makes the strange choice of Levi. Now this is a remarkable act of pure grace, and I love the song we just sang about, about grace. It's profoundly true. God's, and, and one definition is God's surprise gift love in Jesus Christ. Nothing we can earn but a gift from God in Christ. Now Jesus' invitation to Levi is follow me, become my disciple, which literally means become my apprentice, my student. And so Levi agrees. And in doing so, he leaves behind that very lucrative tax franchise. 
Friends, the idea of grace may be so familiar to us in the Christian tradition, we're no longer shocked by it. We're no longer offended by it. But if you look around at the other great uh, religions of the world, at least some of them have no trace of grace. And let me number, uh, name two. In Hinduism, its law of karma teaches you get exactly what you deserve in life. No more, no less. And there is no room, absolutely no room, for anything like grace. In Islam, the Quran teaches that although Allah is merciful and compassionate, in fact, those words are used probably hundreds of times if you read the Quran, yet the overall teaching of the Quran is that your standing with God and ultimately your salvation is completely dependent on whether or not you scrupulously obey the five pillars of Islam. It's all on you. And the very word Muslim, in fact, means a submitter. If you don't submit, you're in deep trouble. Now, God's grace means there is no person, absolutely no person, and Levi is proof, beyond the scope and reach of God's love and mercy in Christ. No one. In fact, here and elsewhere in Luke's narrative, Jesus seems far more attracted to notorious sinners than to self-righteous folk who think they need no sense of God's grace because of their religious achievements. In fact, I think a danger in being part of any Christian church is if you faithfully serve, sometimes you might feel like, well, you know, God's been good to me, but I've done a lot for the cause of the kingdom. And you can feel a sense of pride and maybe even a little uh, arrogance. And then you're in danger, friends, of becoming more Pharisaic, of feeling beyond the need of Christ's amazing grace. And if you hold on to anything else in the whole Christian faith, hold on to Christ's grace. It is the essence of the gospel. Now, repentance is a word often used by Luke and responding to a complaint by the Pharisees and the scribes in this text that Jesus dare associate with notorious sinners, he answered, I have come to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. Those words to repentance, we think that Luke had Mark's gospel, a written copy before him as he wrote his good news document. And those words called to repentance are words Luke adds. Not that he's adding the concept, but he's adding the explicit uh, call to repentance. And this reference, again, doesn't appear in Mark. Repentance literally means to change directions. It means to change attitudes and behaviors, turning from sin and selfishness to God and the will of God. Now, in addition to saying yes to becoming Jesus' follower and leaving his very lucrative tax franchise, how else does Levi show his repentance by throwing a great banquet, a great feast in Jesus' honor so he can bear witness to the grace of Christ, inviting other notorious tax collectors and sinners to dine with them. This is Jesus' habitual practice, to dine with people from a variety of different backgrounds. He dines sometimes with Pharisees, the religious elite, 
many times with tax collectors, the scum of that society in the opinion of the majority. Now, dining with another person, first century Judaism, was a sign of acceptance. And so Jesus is grace-giving, not only to call Levi, but to sit down at table with him and his disreputable friends. Lewis Meads, who taught at Fuller Seminary when Dale and I were both there. Now, I'm older than Dale. I, anyway, I was there earlier, and Dale was there later. Um, that's why he looks so boyishly young, and I have all this gray hair. Anyway, um, Lewis Meads taught ethics, and he has a wonderful definition. He wrote a number of wonderful books, general readership books that I recommend to you. Uh, one of his definitions of grace is accepting another person before they become acceptable. Remember that. Accepting another person before they become acceptable. That's what grace is, and that's what Jesus has done with Levi in this text. Notice Jesus' response to the complaint of the Pharisees who did not attend the banquet <laughs> about his association with tax collectors and other sinners. Those who are well, or think they are well, have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in this passage, Christ's grace calls forth a repentant response from Levi. Now, I believe repentance is an activity in which God's Spirit enables us to also participate. And I also believe that repentance isn't a once-for-all, a one-and-done reality, but something Christ challenges us to do on an ongoing basis throughout life as we seek to grow in what Paul calls the obedience of faith. So where are you on your discipleship journey? Hopefully you've heard the call of Christ to you. What destructive and sin-filled attitudes and actions do you need to root out and discard from your life? And from a positive perspective, what attitudes and spiritual practices do you need to add to your life? to more faithfully follow Jesus Christ. A man I know is a wonderful example of repentance. This individual grew up in a Christian church and then drifted away from both Christ and the church, and especially in young adult years, got into uh, a number of fistfights, um, abused alcohol, Worked as a bouncer, a bartender in some really seedy joints you'd never want to enter, and was estranged from many of his family members. But when a family member became gravely ill, he returned to the community, and he returned to his faith as well, to Jesus Christ. And he sought every opportunity to learn from and serve Jesus Christ. And he's grown into a remarkably helpful, kind, generous follower of Christ who loves mission opportunities. So anytime the church is doing anything mission-wise, this individual is always there and who bears enthusiastic verbal witness to Jesus Christ. Now in the final portion of our text, the Pharisees and scribes issue another complaint. Here it is. John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. In other words, they're not, they're not disciplined. They give in to all kinds of human desires and wants, and, and, and rather than fasting, 
they're doing the opposite. They're celebrating, they're eating and drinking. Now, fasting, as we know, was taught elsewhere in the Gospels by Jesus. See Matthew chapter 7, for instance. It's an activity to help us focus on prayer and on God and maybe uh, looking for God's intervention in a particular place in our lives. But here Jesus responds to the complaint by comparing himself to a bridegroom at his own wedding celebration and his disciples to guests of that celebration and says, just as it would be inappropriate to fast in the presence of the bridegroom at his wedding, so it's inappropriate to fast in the presence of Jesus. Now, Jesus was a complex person. He often had struggle and quite a lot of sadness in life. And yet in the Gospels, especially this Gospel, Luke's Gospel, Jesus is characterized as a joy-filled person with a very keen sense of humor, an outgoing, fun-loving person who attracted people of all kinds. Jesus was a popular dinner guest and obviously enjoyed a good party. In fact, later in Luke's Gospel, Jesus will be labeled by his critics not only is he allowing his disciples to eat and drink instead of to fast and pray, Jesus himself is going to be labeled a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus liked a good party. In fact, he made a party or a banquet, the central image, the central metaphor for life in God's eternal kingdom. Do you realize that? And in fact, the Lord's Supper is a resurrection meal and it reminds us of that foretaste of the heavenly banquet. So Jesus enjoyed a feast and said, that's what life in God's eternal kingdom is like. And speaking of the future, though, he said, after the bridegroom is taken away from you, then that would be an appropriate time to fast. Now, today we look back on Jesus' redemptive death and his triumph over death and the resurrection. So in response to all that God in Christ has given us, we have so much for which to be thankful and joyful. But there are still those in our culture who think that gloominess is next to godliness. And the notion that Jesus might be pictured with his head back, his, his mouth wide open, enjoying a hearty laugh, seems sacrilegious to some. And friends, as Calvinists, if you study church history more than any other brand of Protestant, we are always accused of being overly serious, solemn, and humorless. And to be honest, no one would ever label our 16th century forebear, John Calvin, as a comedian. And yet even Calvin had a sense of humor. Let me prove it to you. I've read a lot of Calvin and a lot of books about Calvin, and I've come up with one joke that I know he told. Here it is. Asked what God was doing before God created the universe, Calvin's answer was, he was creating hell for people who were overly curious. <laughs> Calvin hated speculation. Read the Bible. Don't, don't get... Don't get too overly speculative. Now, one of the things I appreciate about my dear friend Dale is his sense of humor. And when I think of Dale, just take a minute, just be quiet for a minute, and I want you to think about Dale. 
And, well, okay, I'm hearing laughter, but okay, what I think about when I think of Dale, this is serious, is his laugh, his high-pitched laugh. Don't you hear it? Dale is always good at engaging other people, sharing in laughter. He has a wonderful sense of humor, gets others to laugh along with him. Dale is a lot of fun to be with. And so was Jesus of Nazareth. So as we seek to follow Jesus today, would those observing us say, it appears as if we're following a joy-filled or a joyless Christ? Is our faith journey characterized by joy and gratitude or by grim duty and obligation? Duty is fine, and obligations are necessary. But friends, that isn't how Luke habitually describes the Jesus we worship and serve. So my question to you, how does the joy of Jesus, the bridegroom, radiate from all of our lives? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.